right, well, let's turn the eyes of our hearts to the Lord Jesus now as we go to him in prayer. <coughs> Lord Jesus, we turn our hearts to you. We turn the eyes of our hearts to you, and we ask you that you would open the eyes of our hearts more this morning to see how the whole Bible points to your story, to what you've done, and how you've rescued us from sin. I pray, Father, that you would um, just be with our minds as we turn them to your word. Teach us, Lord. Open our hearts to receive what you have for us today, and strengthen us in our resolve to learn from the mistakes of Israel in the past and to turn to you in trust and in faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn in them to Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 10. And we're going to be diving into the first 13 verses there. As a brief Refresher for you to catch you up to speed. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 has just challenged the Corinthian church to be lifelong runners in the Christian race of life. Running the race to win, to gain a crown that lasts forever. And we talked about that crown of life that they're running for three weeks ago. That crown is the prize of resurrection life with Jesus and the honor of ruling the new creation and taking care of it one day with Jesus. So, for example, Psalm 8 pictures Adam, the first man created, as crowned with glory and honor, with all things under his feet, Ruling God's world on God's behalf for God's honor. That's the crown of humanity. The, the, a crown means you're a king, right? God, the great king of all, put Adam in charge, crowned him with the honor of ruling creation on God's behalf, and Adam did what? He passed that off to the devil and said, Hey, you drive. I'll listen to you. Now this world is the, the prince of the power of the air rules over it. But Jesus, a new king, is breaking in. A new act, right? And all who are with Jesus by faith and stick with him to the end will be crowned with the glory that Adam lost. The honor of ruling creation with Christ. So run for this crown, says Paul. That's at the very end. We're going to actually end our memory verses for the, for the month is that passage where Paul encourages us to run. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Okay. Now, in verses 1 to 13 of chapter 10, here's what Paul is going to do. He's going to say, you guys want to know what it looks like to not run? Look at Israel. You want to look, see what it looks like? To see a, a train wreck before the finish line? Look back at the nation of Israel. And there he's going to say, these Old Testament stories of Israel as a nation, they were recorded, they were written down. Not for Israel, but for you. For the church. For the Corinthians. They were recorded, not for those who died in the wilderness. No, these stories were written down and preserved for us, that we would learn how to live and how not to live from those stories. So what I'm going to do this morning is to read this passage, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13. And as I read, I'll make some comments along the way. So I'll, I'll pause a few times as we're reading just to clarify a few things. And then um, we'll dive in and see three things from this passage. So 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13. Paul says, 4. I did not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Okay, pause. Paul here is talking about the people of Israel, our ancestors. 
He's writing to the Corinthians, a mostly non-Jewish group of people. And he calls the people of Israel our ancestors. Just keep that in mind from a theological standpoint. It's very important. The writers of the New Testament, including the Apostle Paul, considered everyone who had faith in Jesus to be a part of the family of Abraham, grafted in. Galatians 3.29 makes this very clear. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, his offspring, and heirs according to the promise. So how do you become part of Israel if you're not biologically an Israelite? Well, you have an Israelite king, Jesus. And you have an Israelite brother, Jesus. You have an Israelite savior, Jesus. You have the seed of Abraham, Jesus, as your heir. So we belong to Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus, you're the offspring of Abraham. Our ancestors, said Paul, writing to the church in Corinth. Verse 2, he says, They, the Israelites, were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Most of them. Who can remember the two men that didn't die in the wilderness? What are their, what are their names? Do you remember? Joshua. Joshua and Caleb. Joshua, whose name is Jesus, and Caleb. Two humans get to enter the restored picture of Eden. The land. Ah, where do we read that? Genesis 1, two humans going back. Okay, Joshua and Caleb in this instance. Two humans allowed to enter. God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness, except for Joshua and Caleb. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Pause, notice, when Paul says test Christ, Paul is obviously saying Yahweh in the Old Testament, who they put to the test in the story we're going to look at in Exodus 17, Yahweh, who they tested, was Christ. Jesus is Yahweh. The writers of the New Testament make, go out of their way to make that clear. Jesus is Jehovah. Okay? Yahweh of the Old Testament. You go hundreds of places to see this. This is one of them. They tested Christ. When you read the stories of the Old Testament, it's Yahweh they're testing. Verse 10 do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. Verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the, literally, end of the ages has come. So the, the Old Testament stories, pause here again, about the people of Israel, as you read your Old Testament, they are written down for us, as a warning for us. You ever thought, what did the Israelites think as they were reading these stories? They, for the most part, didn't read them. We are reading them now. Us. We are living in the end of the ages. Have you ever wondered that? Am I living in the end times? The Bible would say, yes. The end of the ages has come on you. You see that there? On, upon whom the end of the ages. Your, your translation might say the culmination of the ages. Literally, it's the end of the ages. That language comes from a key phrase used all throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 49, Numbers 24, Deuteronomy 31, Hosea 2, Daniel 2. The end of days. 
the end of days, the end of days. And every time it's used, it's referring to the days of this coming Messiah, the King. It's like the phrase end of days, when it shows up in the Bible, it's like a drum roll. And we're going to talk about Jesus, okay? So we don't have, we've preached on that before, don't have time to cover that. But that's where Paul gets this language here in 1 Corinthians 10. We are living in the, day, the end of days, the days of the Messiah. He's come, and we're waiting for him to come again. The days of the risen king. Now, look at what he says in verse 12. So, if you think you are standing firm, looking back at the stories of Israel going, you dummies, I would never do that. If you're thinking you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And he says, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, as Israel was, he will provide a way out so you can endure it. So I've already talked about some things. You know, Why was he pausing and talking about this, those things? Well, those things are things we're not really going to circle back to. These are three things now that we're going to see in these verses. I'm going to give you these three things that I want you to take away. Here's the main point of the passage. The main point is that the Old Testament was written to show that the people of Jesus have, one, a salvation like Israel's, two, sins and temptations like Israel, and three, the faithful God of Israel. So, the main point, the Old Testament was written to show us three things. The people of Jesus have a salvation like Israel's, sins and temptations like Israel, and the faithful God of Israel. So first, the Old Testament was written to show that the people of Jesus have a salvation like Israel's. We'll see that in verses 1 to 4. The stories of the Old Testament were carefully designed by the authors of the Bible operating under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to show us the shape and the pattern of the salvation that God would eventually provide the world through Jesus Christ. This salvation was something talked about again and again in the Old Testament itself. So, the Exodus story is a picture of what God does setting his people free from Egypt. And Isaiah picks up a lot of language about the Exodus in his writings and says there's going to be a new Exodus led by a new servant of the Lord who's also called the arm of the Lord, just like Moses was. And this new Exodus is going to break God's people free from sin through a crucified king. Okay, so we are... Again, we don't have time to summarize all that, but that's just a big big picture, okay? These stories, when you're reading in the story of the Exodus and God's deliverance there, it's pointing forward to what God's going to do in the future. It's, shed, it's setting patterns, okay? Like, I'm trying to think of like an illustration of like a, a, um, a music piece, right? That has like a melody, a, a familiar melody line that kind of, is repeated throughout from the beginning to the end. Okay? That's kind of how the Bible story is. The initial patterns are like melodies that are picked up and repeated again and again throughout the stories. So if you see an Exodus, you'll probably see another one, right? If you see priests, you'll probably see a final priest. If you see prophets, you'll probably see a final prophet. If you see king in Genesis, Adam ruling creation, you're going to see a king at the end of days. A last Adam ruling creation. Okay, these patterns, hundreds of them, not exaggerated, are all throughout the Bible's story, flowing from Genesis to Revelation. The Old Testament was written as patterns, as pictures, as types, and as prophetic um, teaching, pointing towards Jesus and everything that would happen when Jesus comes. So, verses 1 to 4. We'll read them again. Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. All right. So I want you to keep in mind that in context, in Corinthians, Paul has been talking to Christians who have been baptized in water into Jesus Christ. And they're Christians who have tasted the communion bread and drank the cup of the Lord's Supper also. So what he's saying in these verses is that our spiritual ancestors as Christians, the people of Israel, all went through similar spiritual experiences many years before us. The first one is their corporate baptism as a nation. On the third day of their journey out of Egypt, Israel reaches Egypt, it reaches the, the Red Sea, or literally in Hebrew, it's the Sea of Reeds, interestingly. Um, they, they reach this sea on their third day out of Egypt. And they're stuck against the sea, facing certain death. The wind of God goes out over the waters of the sea and miraculously divides them in two so that the people could follow their leader Moses through the divided waters on dry land. After they passed through the waters, the waves came back again and destroyed the Egyptian army as it chased them. The picture here in this story, in Exodus chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15, is that God saves his people through the waters of death itself. Salvation through judgment. That's what the picture of baptism, water going on God's people, and them surviving, that's what that's all about. Sin is judged by the flood of God's punishment, yet God's people are able to pass through the waters of judgment alive. In Exodus 14, the way that they are able to find life in the midst of the waters is because of the wind of God. Wind and spirit are the same word in Hebrew and in Greek. The wind of God, the breath of God, the spirit of God goes over the waters and makes life in the midst of watery chaos on the third day. This is a repeat for those who know Genesis 1 and 2 very well. Uh, the wind of God is hovering over the waters in Genesis 1, same word as spirit. And on the third day, the waters are divided and the dry land comes through. Okay, and creation emerges from the waters where people can now live. The God of creation is causing life in the midst of the waters. We see this in the flood story as well, and which is also compared to a baptism in 1 Peter 4. The wind of God goes over the waters of the flood and creates dry land for this Moses, or Noah guy to land on. And he goes out and he's blessed just as Adam was, and then he sins just like Adam did Sin repeats itself. But here Israel is going through and God dries the land on the third day. But I want you to notice, Paul doesn't just say that the people were baptized into the Red Sea. No, he says they're baptized in the sea and in the cloud of God's presence that was leading them in that story. And they were baptized into a person, interestingly. They're baptized into Moses. Do you see that there in, in 1 Corinthians 10? That, that means that their water baptism, going as a nation through the waters of death and finding life there because of God's wind, they, they are going through led by Moses because spiritually they had put their faith in Moses and in the Lord as he led them through the waters. Moses himself, as their leader, had actually been passed had actually passed through the waters before them. His name, Moses' name, means to draw out. Because Moses was drawn out of the Nile after passing through those waters in a little basket. Remember his mom made this little basket for him? Covers it with tar and pitch. Does anybody remember? I've preached on this before. Does anybody remember what that little basket is literally called in Hebrew? An ark. Little Moses is a little Noah going through the waters of chaos and he finds life in Egypt because of God. He is 
his story is like a little snippet of the Noah story. And, and, and what he goes through is eventually what Israel as a whole nation will go through. Passing through the waters and finding life. No, Moses now leads the people on a journey towards rescue. And listen to the summary statement of this whole event at the end of Exodus 14, verse 31. Following Moses, their leader, we learn they went through the sea. And now, verse 31 of chapter 14, the people feared Yahweh, the Lord, and believed, trusted in him and in his servant, Moses. Moses is the servant of Yahweh who leads the exodus with an outstretched arm. Isaiah is going to pick up on all this imagery when he calls Jesus, the Messiah, his servant and his arm in Isaiah chapter 53, who leads the new rescue movement for the people of God out of slavery to sin on their way to the new creation described in Isaiah 66. So, throwing a lot at you, but Paul was throwing a lot at us, so blame him. And we're just getting started. Trusting Moses, God's people went through the waters of judgment on dry land. And after leaving behind the waters of the sea, the people don't have bread. And they don't have water. And so they grumble. And they complain against the Lord in Exodus 16 and in Exodus 17. And the Lord provides them water and food in a miraculous way. And that's what Paul is referring to here as spiritual food. That doesn't mean that this is not real food that they're eating. It's ooh, spiritual stuff. It was food provided for them by the life-giving spirit of God. That's what's going on here. The food in the stories of Exodus is the manna from heaven. A strange bread that they named manna, which means, what is it? Okay? <laughs> what is that? Well, let's call it, what is that? And it sustained them in their wilderness wanderings. And the drink that they drank, the spiritual drink, is the water that God miraculously provides for them two times before Sinai and two times after Sinai. Now, I want to focus on one very interesting part of 1 Corinthians 10 for a couple of minutes here. Notice Paul says the Israelites drank from the same spiritual rock that we do, and that the rock was Christ. Some of you may have wondered, or have wondered in the past, as you're reading this story, where does Paul see Jesus in the rock in this Exodus story? How does he read about a rock giving water and see Jesus? What is going on? Well, let's look at the Exodus story together. So I encourage you, if you have a Bible, you can flip back there. Genesis, and the second book of the Bible is Exodus. We're going to be looking at chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. Exodus 17, 1 to 7. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, which is really funny because what did they do in the wilderness of sin? They sinned. Um, but that's what it's called. Uh, sin doesn't mean, yeah, it's, it's not the same in Hebrew. It's not like it was named sin, but it's funny in English that we pronounce it that way. Anyhow, moving from one place to the next according to Yahweh's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses. Pause here. Your translations may have different things. The word complaint here is a little bit soft of a word. That's not a bad translation. Um, this is a courtroom word here. A word used when you bring a legal complaint or a legal judge or a legal grievance against someone. So we file a complaint, right? That's kind of what's going on. We file a grievance. The people are filing a grievance against God. They're charging God legally, judging him. Give us water. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them. Why are you testing Yahweh? In other words, these people are literally putting God on trial with their grumbling. God is in the dock, and they're saying, God, you're not good. They are judging God. Verse, if we were good, good dads would never bring their kids out here with no water. So you're a bad dad. That's basically what they're saying. 
If, if you were a good father, we would not be in this position. That's actually what grumbling is, by the way, judging God. God, if I were running the world, I would do things different. Let's talk about what that would look like if I were in charge. So that's what the people are doing. Verse 3, the people thirsted for water and they grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you ever bring us out of e from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to Yahweh, what should I do with these people? In a little while, they're going to stone me. They're going to kill me with stones. Now listen closely to the Lord's response. Yahweh answered Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. The representatives of Israel. Take the staff. You sh not just any staff, not just a walking stick, no. Take the staff, specifically the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand, and go. This is Moses' striking staff. It's the staff that he raised and struck the Nile, and the Nile became blood. It's the staff that he raised over the sea, and split it. And then, after Israel was saved, he raised it again and filled the sea with the blood of the Egyptians. The first plague and the final judgment of Egypt end the same way, if you notice in the story. Water filled with blood. And for those of you who know the Exodus story really well, that should make sense. It's a punishment that fits Egypt's crime against Israel because the Egyptians had been filling the Nile River with the blood of Israel's babies, baby boys, for decades. And so God calls Moses to take the judgment staff used for striking Egypt, this staff that represents judgment. And the Lord says this, verse 6, I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. This is a big rock, by the way. This is a, a word for a massive rock. Not just a little stoning stone, but a massive boulder. And it's at the base of Mount Sinai, which is Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And Yahweh is going to stand on this rock that's part of the mountain of God, part of Sinai. And Yahweh's going to stand there, and Moses is going to hit the rock that Yahweh himself is standing on. And he's to hit the rock with the staff of judgment as a representative and leader of the people of Israel who are in that moment judging God for not providing water. Okay? So, hear what Moses is doing. He is symbolically judging Yahweh. God is standing on the rock... And Moses, the representative, takes the staff of judgment and whacks the rock with all the leaders of the nation behind him. Because that's what Israel is doing. They are judging God, saying, you're not good. If you were good, you would provide water. And when Yahweh is struck, water came out. And the people drank. And Moses did this in sight of the elders of Israel, and he named the place Massa and Meribah. Reeb, Reeb, Meribah. Place of judgment, the place of complaining. Because they tested the Lord and said, Is Yahweh among us or not? This is an amazing story, and there's a lot going on here. Yahweh stands on the rock, which probably meant that the glory of his presence, that cloud that was leading them, hung over that rock. And then Moses walks up and strikes the, uh, the rock. It says, if God himself is struck, and then life-giving water pours out from the rock as it's split. This huge rock, keep in mind where it's at. It's at the base of Mount Sinai, the mountain of Horeb, where God himself is about to come down in Exodus 19 and meet with his people. There's so many pieces of the story that connect to other parts of the Bible. All right, But I'll just focus on one, one part here for a moment. 
This word for rock here that's being struck, it's not just a random word for rock. It's not used very often, actually. It's a word that shows up um, most significantly in Deuteronomy 32. In Deuteronomy 32, at the very end of the first five books of the Bible, Moses repeatedly uses this word for rock to call God the rock of Israel. For example, Deuteronomy 32, 18. You, Israel, deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. So, who is the rock of Israel? It's Yahweh. God identifies himself as the rock of Israel. And amazingly, when God identifies himself with this rock, and it's struck in judgment, life-giving water flows out of the mountain of God and gives life to the people of God, even though they are filled with sin. This is a mighty picture of mercy here in this story. So in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says we drink from the same spiritual rock as God's people, and our rock is Christ, God's Messiah. Where does Paul get that? Well, to really grasp what's going on here well would take a lot of, a lot of time, okay? We would have to do a whole biblical theology of stones and rocks in the Bible and see how they often represent going back to Eden moments. So I'll just give you a quick summary. Try to make it quick. Eden in the Bible is the first mountain of the Lord. Ezekiel 28 verse 14 makes that clear. Rivers flowed out from Eden. You remember this language? And they watered the earth. In Eden, at the top of this mountain, there's a garden. You can read about that in Genesis 2. And the garden on Mount Eden was a hot spot of God's presence on earth. It was the place where God chose to meet with humans. In fact, the tabernacle of Israel, and then later on the temples of Israel that sat on the mountain outside Jerusalem, they're meant to picture and recreate this original meeting place with God. That's why the temples are filled with all kinds of garden imagery. And there's so much, so many more connections that we could talk about. But just get that idea in your head. These temples on mountains are, are all hearkening back to the Eden story where we want to meet God again on a mountain. We want to go back to the mountain and meet with God. In later biblical prophecy, like Zechariah 14 or Ezekiel 48, or even the end of the Bible in Revelation, the new creation and the temple that's coming is described as a temple on a mountain with a river coming out of it. A river that brings life. And all of this imagery and prophecy point to the day that God himself would come down again in the flesh and literally become the embodiment of the temple of Israel. Isaiah 8, 13-14 says, Yahweh Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a sanctuary, a temple for both Israel and Judah. He, the Lord, will not only be a sanctuary, he'll be a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock, same word as Exodus, that makes them fall. Jesus, in the New Testament, Paul, other writers apply this to Jesus. Jesus is now the rock where people go to meet God and get their sins forgiven. Jesus is the one in the story of the Bible who gives living water. Jesus is our temple. Jesus is our sanctuary. And in Jesus, we too become God's temple. Now, if your head is spinning a little bit, you're like, what, what's, what's going on here? Maybe some of these things are new to you. This is a huge piece of the, the biblical story of the Bible. Okay, <coughs> From Eden to the New Jerusalem. Starts on a mountain with God, ends in the New Jerusalem, God's holy mountain with God forever. Okay, And 
Someday, I love, I brought this up here. Um, you could tell the whole story of the Bible asking the question, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? All right. who, who can go back to Eden, the mountain of the Lord? And ultimately, Jesus leads the way back by coming down to us. This is, we'll preach a sermon on it someday, a flyover sermon. But I just want you to think every time that every, every, um, well, I'll back up here. So when you look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you say, we have drank from the rock. The rock is Christ. Every time we drink the communion cup, we're symbolically finding life from Jesus, our rock. His life for us when he was struck. Every time we eat the communion bread, we're symbolically finding life for the body, from the body of Jesus. Just like Jesus himself, the God of Israel, provided bread and water for his people in the wilderness. We have the same God as the people of Israel. The same rescue that they experienced, we experienced when we were baptized into Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul, that's the main takeaway of this passage in so far. The salvation that Israel experienced, life coming out of a rock, is what we experience when we come to Jesus, the, the cornerstone rock of God's life-giving temple that's coming and now has come. So how can the rock be Christ? Because Christ is everything that the rock points to in the Old Testament. Now, the second point today, we have the same sins and temptations like Israel. Verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were, as it, was as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. This quote from Exodus 32, where Israel made a golden calf and danced around it and had a huge drunken party and engaged in a whole host of sexual sin. Paul is referencing it. And he goes on, Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. In these verses, Paul is moving on to the book of Numbers. And he's referencing some of the stories there. Verse 11. These things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So... In the context of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the, the Corinthian church has been wondering, can we eat meat that's sacrificed to idols? And before that, they were asking all sorts of questions about marriage. And before that, Paul was criticizing them for tolerating a man who was having terrible sexual immorality in his life. Now in our passage this morning, Paul brings up some examples from Israel's history where Israel did a lot of the same things. Idolatry, immorality, and he's saying, watch out, Corinthians, be warned. The Israelites experienced an amazing salvation of God from Egypt. And they experienced the blessing of God in the wilderness, eating food that God provided, drinking water, living water from the rock of God at the mountain, at the base of the mountain of God. And we have come to Christ himself, who all that points towards. We have received life from him. How much more should we keep our eyes on Christ and be wary of falling away? You've come to something infinitely better, to Jesus, the rock of our salvation. Don't forsake Jesus like they did. That's his point here. But... He also says, don't be discouraged or afraid, because we have the same God, the same faithful God as they did. Verses 12 to 13. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. 
No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. So notice just a few things here. First, Paul warns against thinking you stand. If you think you're standing in the Christian life and doing great, if you think, I've got this down, be careful lest you fall. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. I know there's been times in my life where I've read the stories of Israel and thought, how could they be so stupid? The reality is their temptations are our temptations. Their sins are our sins. Their struggles to trust God are our struggles to trust God. They experienced so much of God's grace and kindness to them in the early chapters of Exodus, all the way up until the law was given on Sinai. But then, after Sinai, things changed dramatically. We, again, back when we preached through the Torah, you saw that we saw this. There's four events. Almost identical events that happen on one side of the giving of the law and four events on the other. Four in Exodus, four in Numbers. The people grumbling over water, the people grumbling over food, people grumbling over water. And before the law is given, Israel receives mercy, 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 as we saw. And after the law is given, they, Exodus 32, rebel against God in a horrific way and they do it again and again and again and now that they know they've received the knowledge of good and evil in the law they pay for their sins they are judged severely they reject the Lord so much so after the law is given that only two adult humans among them are allowed to go and enter into the promised land of Canaan so Paul's conclusion to the Corinthians and to us is be careful if you think you're doing great in your Christian life. Wisdom would have us keep a sober mind about things and to ponder the ways of Israel and be wise. The next thing Paul says is intended to encourage us. He says, no temptation has faced you in this life that's something so extreme that nobody has faced it before us. No matter how hard you think you might have it, it's always going to be a temptation that is coming to man, both to the Israelites and to all humans everywhere. None of us are utterly unique among the race of humans, such that our God would look at us and say, Wow, your life is so hard, I'm going to lower the bar for you. In fact, because your life is so hard, I'll give you a free pass. Just enjoy a little sin along the way to the new creation. Enjoy a sweet reward of sin for being such a good, hard-working Christian. Because, you know, life is hard and the Christian life is tough. No. Nothing we're tempted with is utterly unique to us. Israel faced it. 2,000 years of Christians living for Jesus through all sorts of hardships have faced this. Jesus himself faced temptations. And in and through every temptation to reject the Lord, there is... One final thing that Paul wants you to know. Our faithful God will give us a way out of every temptation we face. See that in verse 13? God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will give you a way out. So, when we are tempted and face a huge pressure in our lives, both whether from within us or from without, to cave in to the sinful desires of our flesh, we must know that our God has not abandoned us to our cravings. He's given us his promise to be with us. He's given us his help. We will always have a way out. God will never back you up against a vast sea of water without providing a way through the sea for anyone who trusts in the new Moses, Jesus God will never strand you in the wilderness of life without providing life-giving water 
of the Holy Spirit who is always with us no matter what we face. There will always be a way out, a way through, a way forward, a way to stand faithful as we follow our Joshua, Jesus Christ, into the promised land. So again, the main point today is this. The Old Testament was written to show that the people of Jesus have a salvation like Israel's. Sins and temptations like Israel, and the same faithful God as Israel. So when you read their stories, I pray that they would inspire you. As they have inspired me even this week. To run to the mighty rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. And to drink. Drink of the life he gives. When you're tempted to grumble and to judge God, look to Christ who gave himself for you. And know that God has given us all we need in his Son. When you're tempted to run after idols, to treat the things of earth as if they're more important and more significant than God himself, look to Christ, the fountain of living water. Nothing in creation that God has made can offer what God has given us in himself. He is the fountain of all good. Let's run to him in prayer now. Lord, I just ask that you would help us now to look to Christ, the rock of our salvation, who was struck that we might have life. Father, I thank you that the Bible's beautiful picture of water flowing down from a mountain, from your life-giving presence, out into a desert, giving life to the desert. We see this picture in Ezekiel. We see this picture in Zechariah. Lord, I thank you that that picture is fulfilled in Christ, the fountain of life-giving water, who says... Oh, anyone who thirsts, come to me and drink. And then out of our own hearts, Lord, we read that fountains of living water will spring up by the Spirit. Father, I pray that you would fill us with the life-giving water of your Spirit now as we drink from Christ. And I pray that as we go to the Lord's Supper, Lord, that you would help us to remember the stories of Israel and to remember that as they ate the manna, so we feast on Christ, our bread of life. And as they drank in the wilderness and the desert, so our rock, Christ, was struck so that we might have life and drink of the life that he gives. I pray that you would help us to just thrill our hearts with Jesus now, I ask. In his name, amen. And I ask um, if Ben Aubrey and if uh, Ben Becker, would you guys come and pass out the Lord's Supper for us? were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. If you have been baptized into the new Moses, into Christ, you share the same story. They all ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and the rock was Christ. Friends, as we are about to eat and drink, remember Jesus Christ, struck and broken for you. 
know that the whole story of the Bible, both in specific prophecies and in all the stories, points to the story of the Messiah. And that the hope of the Bible is for the day that he comes again and we will eat and drink in the new creation. So Jesus said on the night that he was about to be murdered, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he, cup, he took the cup. Blood symbolizes life. Life that is given for us. And he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Once again, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for laying your life down for us. We thank you for coming again, for your promise that you're going to come again. And bring about the fullness of the new creation. That the mountain of God will become a mighty mountain, as Daniel prophesied, filling the whole earth. That the rock that defeats the kingdoms of the world will grow into a kingdom of God that will never be destroyed. We, we run to you, Jesus. You are our rock. You are our king. And we know, as Daniel said, your kingdom will never be replaced or destroyed. The Son of Man will receive a kingdom that will never be shaken. And Lord, we, are, we who have come to the rock are right now even receiving that kingdom from you as we put our hope in the new creation that you're bringing and Lord we just ask that you would stir our hearts with love for Christ right now in Jesus' name